Thank you, Brandon. Um, Brandon Parker, thank you for your music last night and this morning, and uh, Pastor Brandon for the opportunity to be here, and Dr. Dickard, thank you for your word. Dr. Allen would be proud of you. Now, he and I know this. Y'all don't, but he'd give you an A on that. He always tells me, he says, Mac, every passage doesn't have three points. I said, yes, it does. I find them every time, all three of them. <laughs> you did a great job. Thank you for that. We appreciate you, and thank you for leading us um, as pastor of the president, as president of the pastor's conference. Years ago, Dr. Criswell, you know, when you, you know the cost of that. It costs money to do it. And um, when I was president of the pastor's conference, it cost First Dallas $110,000 uh, because the preachers won't give to it when they get there. I'm just telling you ahead of time, brother. And so um, uh, one of these guys, they had elected him, and they came up to Dr. Criswell, and he's, you know, Dr. Criswell looks at him, and he says, son, we honor you by giving you that position, and you honor us by paying for it. So anyway, good. Uh, I hope you've got your copy of God's Word this morning. You know, God's got a sense of humor. Um, why else would he land my wife between University of Alabama and Auburn? Now, her daddy played football for Clemson. Uh, and she is a dyed-in-the-wool Clemson fan. In fact, um, we're going to be perched up somewhere tonight at 6.30 when they play Notre Dame. So, you know, to get in that family, you, you've almost had to sign, not in blood, you had to sign in orange that you were going to be a Clemson supporter. So we're stuck there now between University of Alabama and Auburn University, and um, I just have to just sit her down so you can't go in there today and start ragging these people from Alabama who lost last week. You can't do that. You know, you can get me fired doing this stuff. Because I've got a guy, Ben Howell. Any of y'all remember Ben Howell? He's one of my deacons. He's got four national championships rings. You know, he wears on his fingers. So anyway, I said, you can't, you can't go in there and do that. Well, a couple of weeks ago, um, Nick Saban had to pull Bryce Young. I don't know if you were watching the game. We were watching it. He went down. He's tackled hard on his shoulder injured his shoulder, Saban pulls him out of the game, pulls him out of the game the next week, puts in the second string quarterback. Sometimes life is like that. You're just pulled out of the game and you're put on the sideline. Now, if you watch Bryce Young, who is incredible quarterback, very sharp, extremely smart, he's standing on the sideline even though he's injured and he's being coached the entire time. Well, last week, uh, Dabo had to pull uh, DJ Uangalele out of the game. Uh, he fumbles on the 10-yard line. Uh, they're about ready to score against Syracuse. He fumbles on the 10-yard line. Syracuse scoops it up and runs 90 yards for a touchdown. He gets there in the third quarter. He throws his second interception, and Dabo just pulls Uangalele out of the game and stands him on the side. And if you're watching through that, you've got a quarterback coach that is over here just talking to him as he's watching the game. And so then Dabo will come over every now and then. He'll point out there, and he'll be talking. He's coaching him. Uh, have you ever been pulled out of the game and stood up on the sideline? Now, some of you are there. Some of you are there right now. You're there in your personal life. I'm just standing on the sidelines. I don't understand why. Some of you are there in your professional life. I'm just, I'm, I'm here on the sideline. I'm, for some reason, the boss, you know, the company, they're not putting me in the game. I'm just kind of stood up right now on the sideline in the most productive period of my life, and I don't understand it. Some of you are there. Listen, there are pastors that are there. They feel like denominationally. They feel like that's where they are in their church. Uh, and some of you feel like, I'm just, in my spiritual life, God's just got me on the sideline. I'm just standing here on the sideline, and I really don't know why. Well, I want to tell you something. That's where Moses is when you get to the second chapter 
of Exodus. And that's where I want you to go. So let me see. At least grab a hymn book and let me think you've got a Bible. <clears throat> Moses, chapter 2 of Exodus, on the sideline, you know the story of Exodus, while, or, or the story of Moses, while you're going to Exodus. Let me tell you, the first two chapters cover a period of about 400 years. Isn't that interesting? It starts off with the death of uh, Joseph. It starts off naming all of the sons of Jacob, and then with the death of Joseph, you go from there 400 years, and you've got the story of Moses. So you're crossing about 400 years in chapter 1 and 2. Chapter 2 is divided into two periods, 40 years each. So you've got 80 years in chapter 2, and uh, when you get to chapter 3 to chapter 38, one year. One year. Now, I don't know why I told you all that other than, isn't it fascinating how God writes his word? So he comes down now to Moses' life. Eighty years of Moses' life will pass in the second chapter. The first 40 years you know about, he's put out in the basket when, he, his, when his mother gives birth. They put him out in the basket. He's found by Pharaoh's daughter. You know the whole story of that. And then you get down to Moses who decides that he's no longer going to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You can get to Acts chapter 7. You can go to Hebrews chapter 11, and you get a little bit more insight there. And uh, I'm in Acts chapter 7 now. You put your finger in, in Exodus 2. But when he was approaching the age of 40, this is verse 23, Acts 7, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. Now, I don't have time to go through this, but how did he know those were his brothers? How did he know he was a Hebrew and not an Egyptian? How did he know that these Hebrews were his people? Well, his mother evidently had taught him the history of Israel when he was very young. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him, took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting. Watch this. Now look at the text. Look at what it says. That God was granting them deliverance through him. Obviously, he not only had heard about the Hebrews being his people, but he had also heard that the Hebrews were to look for someone who would come. Now, what's the last thing Joseph tells them in the last chapter of Genesis? God's going to take care of you. God's going to take care of you. God's going to send somebody, and he's going to take you from here in this land to over there to the land of promise. So he begins to think, evidently, he must be the guy. No other Hebrew his age has survived. He's been educated in the ways and the learning of the Egyptians. You see that in Acts 7, verse 22. Educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He was a man of power in words and in deeds. He was a leader. He was born, and now he is being reared in the palace of Pharaoh as the high prince of Egypt, possibly groomed to sit in Pharaoh's position one day. And now he decides he's going to go out and deliver the Hebrews, and they're all going to love him for it. They're all going to applaud him. They're all going to think you're just the greatest thing since uh, manna, you know, <laughs> since sliced bread, since grits, and you've come to deliver us. But when he goes back to the scene of the crime, the next day, he sees two Hebrews fighting, and he breaks them up to say, you should not be fighting. You're brothers. You should not be fighting. And one of the Hebrews, according to Stephen here in Acts, pushes Moses away and says, what are you going to do? Kill me too, like you did the Egyptian? And he realizes now that he's been found out and that he's not popular among the Hebrews like he thought, and now he has lost. He has lost favor with the Egyptians as well because Pharaoh hears about it, and now he is being hunted. He's a fugitive. He runs off into the Sinai. He runs out into the wilderness, into the desert, and that's where we find Moses at the end, or really in the middle of chapter 2. 
and uh, Moses is there hugging a whale. Uh, verse 16, 15, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh, settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down. Literally, I think he collapsed by the well. He is out in the wilderness. He's dying for something to drink, some thirst, uh, something to quench his thirst, and so he collapses there by the well. He's on the sidelines now. And I am sure he's beginning to think to himself, what in the world is going on in my life? Why am I here in this place? I thought I was doing what I was supposed to do. Uh, but he was attempting to do God's will in the wrong kind of way. And I don't have time to go into that, but you understand it. You can do what you think is right, but you can do it in an ungodly way, and that's where Moses is, and he is pulled, and he's put on the sideline, and I want you to understand that on the sideline, God places you there for the purpose of assigning you a new task. Do not, men, misunderstand being put on the sideline with being put on the shelf. Don't confuse the two. Moses doesn't understand it yet. He doesn't realize it yet. He doesn't know it yet. But God's got him in a place now where God's going to begin to speak to him. In fact, let me do something with the language right here. Let me show you something in Hebrew. All the way through the Old Testament, you read these words, Debar Yahweh, Debar Yahweh, Debar Yahweh. Debar is word, the word of God. Yahweh, the Word of God. In the Hebrew, the word for wilderness is midbar. They both have the same root to them. Dabar, midbar. God will often take you and put you in midbar in the wilderness where you can hear the duck bar of Yahweh. Sometimes he has to get you off and in the wilderness. That's what he did with Jacob. Jacob is running because he has stolen the birthright from his brother Esau, and his mom and dad said, he's going to kill you if you don't get out of here. And so he ran, and when he's off in the wilderness, there he has a dream of a ladder that stretches up into the heavens, angels ascending and descending, and at the top of it is the glory of God. And we'll come back to that. But he gets him out into the wilderness before he begins to listen to the Word of God. Elijah, on Mount Horeb, on the mountain of God that Moses is going to end up at, um, there at the mountain of God, he goes there. He runs from Jezebel. Remember, he defeats 850 men, prophets of Baal. And then one woman puts the bad mouth on him, and he runs like a scared rabbit. Y'all understand that. Just go ahead and nod your head. We're right there with you. We understand it. He runs, and he gets up to the mountain, and you remember, he comes to the opening of the cave, and there is this massive wind that blows and rends the rocks and tears everything up, and then this massive fire that comes by, and then all of a sudden comes this gentle breeze, and the voice of God was in the breeze. John the Baptist learns to preach out in the wilderness. Jesus faces the temptation of Satan out in the wilderness. Paul goes to Arabia for three years out in the wilderness, I think with the Old Testament, and there he begins to read, and he understands what Jesus is saying to the two men on the road to Emmaus, that all the Old Testament is a prophecy of him. So God sometimes has to stand us out on the sideline in the wilderness before he can get our attention so he can, listen, make preparation in our lives for a future assignment. Now, that's where Moses is. That's where some of you feel like you are. Now, let me show you a couple of things, and I'll wrap this up a little quicker than I did last night. Let me show you this, that first of all, understand this, that disappointments cannot be confused with the rejection of God. He's not rejecting you. Never understand that. Oftentimes, divine appointments come in the form of disappointments. Now, let me say that again because I don't think you got it. 
Oftentimes, divine appointments will come in the form of disappointments. Now, here's Moses. He's down at that well. He's fallen down there. And as he falls there, I am certain that all he can think about at that moment is how disappointing his life is. He was on line to either occupy the throne of Pharaoh or to be second to Pharaoh. He led armies. He was incredibly well-educated. He was a man whose life was unlike anything we can generally think of, and now it's all gone because of one rash act that he did in killing that Egyptian, and now he thinks about, I am just a disappointment to everybody. I'm a disappointment to myself. He's in the state of discouragement and despair, and yet he does not realize what God is doing in his life. Let me tell you, disappointments often lead to divine appointments. He's not there in the pagan palace of Pharaoh any longer. He's now on the backside of the desert with God. He's not there any longer. He no longer has to go up to the temple of the sun and listen to the priest of Ra. He's there near the mountain of God, as you're going to see in chapter 3, where he can hear the voice of God. He's no longer there where when he gazes up, he's looking up at pyramids or looking up at the massive columns that hold up uh, the roof on the temple of Karnak. He's no longer there. He, now when he looks up, he's gazing up on the mountain of God. He's no longer there leading attendants and leading ambassadors or leading armies into battle. Now he's leading sheep, which is great preparation for leading people. Now that's where Moses is, and he doesn't realize it. It's a divine appointment, but all he can think about, this is disappointment, what I've done, how I've blown it, what a mess I've made of everything. In 1463, the city council of Florence wanted the world to know that they were the center of the Renaissance. Now, the word Renaissance is a French word that means new birth. Uh, let me back up and give you just a little bit of history. Uh, back around 479, when uh, it, after the Battle of Adrianople and beginning of the fall of Rome, everybody in Rome that had any learning whatsoever grabbed their books, grabbed their parchment, grabbed their rolls, their scrolls, and they all left, and they moved over quickly. They ran to Constantinople. Now, remember, at that time, uh, Rome now has split into two parts. You had the Eastern Empire in Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul, and then you had the Western Empire, which was Rome. You had two emperors, and they were running that in that way for the efficiency of the Roman Empire. So they all, when Rome begins to fall, to the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths and all the good goths, uh, folks, they just run over to Constantinople, take everything. And what happens in the West is you have what is the beginning of what is called as the Dark Ages. No more reading, no more art, no more studying, no more language, no more music, no anything. The only people that have any ability to read and to write are the monks in monasteries, and they're closed off to themselves. Well, in 1453, the Muslims come and they begin to take over and defeat the city of Constantinople. Well, everybody who has anything, all the astronomers, all of the medical science, all of the, all of the people with education, grab up all of their books and they run back to Italy. And now you have what is the beginning, the new birth of civilization they believed you have a flowering now people begin to read people begin to write music begins to be written again and played again and all of this education and learning goes on and the center of that is Florence itself and so the city council at Florence wants everyone to know they are the center of this Renaissance in Europe and so they hire the greatest sculptor of the day Augustino uh, Deduccio and they hire him to carve a statue and put a statue in the very center of the piazza there in Florence. 
between the Duomo, the great cathedral there, and the city hall. And so he goes down to the famous marble pits, to the, to the, um, uh, to the place where they quarried all of this white Carrara marble, and he lays out, and he cuts out, and he has them cut out this huge piece of marble that stands 19 feet tall. Uh, but as they cut it out, they cut it too thin, and then it falls down, and it cracks along one side, and they take it back to the city of Florence, and there Augustino de Duccio says, I can't do anything with it. It's ruined. The marble is ruined. It's beyond repair. I'll have to cut a new piece of marble. And the city council at Florence said, we've spent everything on this. We're not going to spend any more money. And so for 38 years, that piece of marble just lies there in the piazza in Florence. Uh, people walk past it year after year for 38 years. And then the council in Florence decides we've got to do something with this. After 38 years, we need to do something with this piece of marble. So they said, let's go to a young guy who doesn't know any better who can do something with this piece of marble, and we'll get some use out of it in some kind of way. So they go and they hire a 26-year-old sculptor. And they bring him to Florence, and they say, can you do anything with this piece of marble? And he says, yes, I can. So they take that piece of marble, they put it into a shop behind the cathedral, and for the next three years, this young Michelangelo carves and chips away and polishes and works on this piece of marble until he's ready to present it to the city. It takes 49 men five days to get it out of the shop and into the square, and they stand it up all under cover until they unveil what has become known as the greatest piece of art in the world today, the David, David, that famous statue that you have seen over and over again of the young shepherd boy, David, with a cloak, uh, with, a, with a sling over his shoulder. He creates that out of a flawed piece of marble, out of a piece of marble that had been rejected out of a piece of marble that the experts said was absolutely useless. But let me tell you something. That's what God does with your life. Amen. He does that with your life. Flawed sin, failure, mistake, and yet God specializes in taking those kind of things and making something out of them that becomes useful in the kingdom of God. So never think that every disappointment is just a disappointment. It very well may be, brothers, a divine appointment in your life. Now let me give you the second thing. That's what God's trying to teach him here on the sideline. The second thing that God wants to teach him here on the sideline is this, and that is you've got to learn to be dependent on God instead of independent from God. Now, let me pick it up in verse 16. We've covered one verse, verse 15. Verse 16. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away. Now, don't worry about this. I'm going to come back to it in a few moments. Moses stood up. By the way, Anastas. Uh, Anastasis is the word there in the Septuagint. Uh, in the New Testament, it comes from the word anahistomy, which is the word that we use, ana again, histomy to stand, to stand again. It's the word that is used for resurrection. Now, I won't comment on that, but it's interesting that that word is there. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and ruomai, again in the Septuagint, it's the word deliver. He delivered them. He delivered them. And when they came to Raul, or Ruel, their father, he said, why have you come back so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. Now, do you, you catch that right there? An Egyptian <laughs> delivered us. Now, by the way, the Midianites are the first cousins of the Hebrews. 
Abraham, after Sarah died, married Keturah, and he had six sons, I believe, and one of those happened to be Midian. And so now they're living in the land where the son of Abraham settled and raised his family. He's there with his first cousins there. They don't even recognize him. They think he's an Egyptian. Now, why do they think this Hebrew is an Egyptian? He has rejected that. He has said, listen, no longer am I the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I am no longer going, I despise that, and I'm going to identify with my own people, the Hebrews. What in the world is going on out here in the desert? God has got him on the sideline, and what he's trying to show him is, you can't live so independent of me but you must live your life in dependence. He hasn't learned that lesson yet. Evidently, he's not going to learn that lesson for about 40 years because what he's doing is he's living like an Egyptian. Why do they think he's an Egyptian? Walk like an Egyptian. Talk like an Egyptian. Dress like an Egyptian. Act like an Egyptian. Probably fought like an Egyptian. They could tell he was a trained warrior. Uh, they could listen to him and tell he was an educated man. They could tell that this man was no doubt an Egyptian, and God has got him out there on the sideline for this purpose. I've got to get, listen, listen, not just the Egyptian out of Moses, I've got to get the Moses out of Moses before he learns dependence on me. Huh? You ever been put on the sideline for that? Has God ever jerked you out of whatever service you were in, stood you up on the sideline until he could get you out of you? And only when God can get you out of you can he begin to do something in your life. And listen to me, because there are a lot of older men here. This guy is 80 years old at this point when you get to the end of this chapter. It takes him 40 years to learn this. Don't let it be 40 years of learning for you. Learn fast. Get on your face before God and say, God, whatever you got to do, get the me out of me so I can learn dependency on you. Well, I can tell y'all are all excited about that. So let me give you the third thing here as I'm moving toward what I really want to share with you in just a few moments. The third thing is this, is that God has him on the sideline because he wants to separate him from something. Now watch, to something. God's not just interested in taking things away from you. He's not just interested in separating you from something. His intention really is to separate you to something. Well, what's he going to separate him to? Well, really three things, but let me show you two things up front. Really, the first thing that he's going to separate him to is humility. Now, where is Moses? in the wilderness. He's down there hugging a whale. The, the, in fact, the word right there to sit down means to inhabit as if you're going to live there. It means to sit down, settle down, make a home. In fact, it's even a word in the Hebrew that's used to describe marriage. Now, I found this one. We're settling down. We're sitting down. We, we, we have settled into what life is going to be. He has settled there next to this well. I believe he got there extremely thirsty, and he's down there in the dirt hugging this well, and up comes these seven women who are shepherding sheep. These seven shepherdesses, it's kind of interesting what's going to happen as they come up. If this were a Disney movie, his name would be Prince Charming, I suppose. Anyway, they come up, and as they come up, and they're getting ready to draw water to fill their water troughs, to, to water their flocks, these shepherds come up. Verse 17, they came up and drove them away, but Moses stood up and delivered them. Now, what's God doing with Moses out here delivering shepherdesses who are watching over sheep? What's God got him out there doing that for? Humility. This is an educated man. This is a man who wore the robes of Pharaoh. 
This is a man who walked the palaces of the greatest kingdom in the world at that time. This was a man of great importance. Do you remember what Pharaoh said to Joseph when Jacob and his other sons got down to Egypt? When Joseph invited, go back, get your families, bring your little ones here, get daddy, bring daddy with you. All of you come here and I'll take care of you. And Pharaoh says, give them the land of Goshen uh, because that's good for their flocks, their herds, their sheep. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, you put them over there on the other side of the night. Get them over there in Goshen because the Egyptians loathe shepherds. Don't read over stuff in Scripture. They loathe. Here he is for 40 years. He's been pretty much taught to loathe. Nothing is lower than a shepherd. And now what is he going to do for 40 years? Lead sheep. That's what you call <laughs> being taught humility. But not just humility, servanthood. Uh, I was several years ago um, uh, in uh, Edinburgh, and we had gone down to uh, Holyrood Palace, and we had gone through Holyrood Palace, and one of the guides there kind of took up with uh, Miss Debbie and myself, and he said, come on, let me take you and show you a couple of things. And so he took us through, and we went out the back and into a garden that was out back, and uh, he says, I'm going to take you out here. He said, Prince Charles, he was prince at the time and not king. He says, Prince Charles comes out here. And he says, when he's here at Holyrood House, he has his breakfast right here under this arbor, back here where nobody sees. And um, I, I said, well, what does he do? Just pick his food up and come out here? And he said, he's pick his food up. He said, we set a table, tablecloth, all this china, all of this silver, uh, there are butlers, there are waiters, there are all these that are there in attendance, and he sits out here to eat his breakfast in the morning. He said, let me tell you, he never lifts a hand to do anything. He says, in fact, there are attendants that put toothpaste. Where's Dr. Gentry? Is he in here? He, he puts toothpaste. They put toothpaste on his toothbrush in the morning. I said, well, buddy, if that was me, I'd say, you keep your hands off my toothbrush now. I don't want anybody else's hands on that. Just, just mine. Thank you very much. That's Moses. We don't think about how Moses was reared, but that was Moses at the time. Now he's out here in the wilderness, and what is he going to do? He's going to water their flock. Now, guys, let me, let me just, you say, well, what's so important about that? You need to understand, in Moses' day, there were only two genders. They didn't have 54 like they got now. There are only two genders, male, female. And they had very, yes, you're exactly right, they still are, you know. But he, you've, got, you've got stuff that women would do that men wouldn't do and stuff that men would do that women wouldn't do. And one of the things that women did was they drew order. That's why, do you remember when Jesus sends the disciples into Jerusalem and, uh, to prepare the last meal and he says, look for a man carrying water? That would stand out like a sore thumb. It, it, it would stand out as, this is odd. What's a man doing drawing water? Men don't do that. Women do that. Well, here is Moses doing what the women would do. And he waters. Why? Because God is not only teaching him humility, God is teaching him servanthood at the same time because if you're going to serve God, you're going to have to serve others. Now, God's got him out there. Let me jump 40 years, okay? Down to chapter 3. God's still training him. God is still teaching him. Here's really the third thing that God's going to do. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, the father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, he gets there. Now, look at the text and what the text is saying. 
the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. Now, what does it appear is blazing right now? What does it say? The angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is blazing from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So if you come to this bush, and here the angel of the Lord is burning in this bush. And the bush appears to be on fire, and it's burning, yet it's not consumed. And Moses is going to turn aside, and he's going to look at this bush. And God is doing two things in this. Number one, God is saying to Moses, I'm in the midst of your everyday life. Now, let me show you something. I've got a picture of a bush that grows in uh, the Sinai. Uh, They grow bushes like this. Now, that's a pretty big one there. They're not all that big. I don't know what size the one Moses saw, but that's a pretty good size one right there. Most of them are smaller. You'll come across some some palm trees if it's near an oasis in the Sinai, Uh, just a few of those that you'll see. But you'll see these, not everywhere, but dotted along uh, the wilderness, you'll see something like this. And if you get up close to that bush, look at what you see. Now, what does that remind you of? Crown of thorns. Let me go the other way in Scripture. Let me take you back to Genesis chapter, chapter 3. As God speaks now to Adam, and he says, Because you've eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Look at the end of verse 17, the first of verse 18. Genesis chapter 3, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. Now, in the middle of a bush of thorns and thistles, you have the blazing angel of the Lord settle in the midst of that as if to say this, I'm in the midst of your fallenness. I'm in the midst of your mess-ups. I'm in the midst of your mistakes. I'm in the midst of your failures. I'm in the midst of the life that you have lived in sin. I am here, and I have an answer for the sin in your life. Now, again, if y'all were Pentecostal, y'all just be falling out. I'm in the midst of that, Moses. You're out here on the backside of the desert by yourself in humility, being humiliated, taking care of sheep, serving. Listen, and now you wonder about your life after 40 years. I want you to see that I'm the God that's in the middle of the mess with you. The second thing is this. What is the angel of the Lord doing? Listen to it again. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire. The fire speaks of purity. God often appears. When they get to Mount Sinai, what are they going to see? They're going to see on the top of that mountain fire, lightning, smoke. When God leads them through the wilderness, how will God lead them? He's going to lead them as a column of fire, a pillar of fire. God will over and over again appear as fire. John's going to see him in Revelation, and his eyes are going to be like a flame of fire, and his feet will glow like burnished bronze from a furnace as if they've been in fire. Why is that? Fire often speaks of purifying things. God is pure. Daniel was talking just a little bit ago about the holiness of God. Our God is holy. We're told once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament, our God is a consuming fire. Peter comes in 1 Peter in chapter 4, and 
he says, listen, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal, ordeal among you <clears throat> as if something has taken you by surprise. He says it's there for your what? Testing. They would assay metals, gold, silver, in a crucible that they would heat up, and they would heat it up until the metal would become liquid, and all the dross would come to the top, and they would scoop it off of the gold or the silver, so it would purify the gold or the silver. God is a purifying fire. Why does he appear to Moses like this? Now listen, notice what he's doing. He's showing Moses something about himself before he ever tells Moses something about himself. What's he going to do? He's going to reveal his name to Moses. I am that I am. But before he gets to that, what's he going to do? He's going to show Moses what? His glory. Doesn't he do that to Jacob? When Jacob looks up at that ladder and he sees at the top the glory of God, doesn't he do that to Isaiah in the temple? Isaiah walks into the temple mourning the death of Uzziah, and he, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. Doesn't he do that to Paul on the road to Damascus, the resurrected Christ, this blinding light that blinds Paul for three days? God often appears in this fire as one who is pure and one who purifies, and he is showing just a glimpse of his glory. God will put you on the sidelines so that you can catch some aspect of his glory. So that you what? Worship. When you see the glory of God, what do you do? Worship. What did God say to Moses here? Don't you come any further. You stop right there. And you take those shoes off your feet because you're on holy ground. And the Bible says, what did Moses do? He covered his face and his eyes because he dared not. He feared to look on God. What did Isaiah do? He fell down in the temple when he saw the glory of God. And he heard God say, whom shall I send? Who will go for it? And Isaiah is going to say, but I'm a man of unclean lips. He's going to worship, and in the worship, he's going to start confessing sin. What a novel thought to do on a Sunday. What does Paul do? He falls down. What does John do in Revelation? He said, I fell down like a dead man. And what is God going to do in all of those? He's going to give them an assignment. Every one of them. Moses here. Moses, you're going to lead my people out. Comes to Jacob. What does Jacob do? Back there where he has that dream, he erects a, 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 an altar and he pours oil over it. And he says, I, I, I saw God here and I've lived. It, it was an act of worship. What's he going to do with Jacob? He's going to bring Israel. He's going to bring all these boys. He's going to bring the patriarchs out of this boy. What's he going to do with Isaiah? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. What's Paul going to do? Paul's going to get over there after three days of being blind, and God tells Ananias, you go lay your hands on him and pray for him. And he says, this is the guy I'm going to use to speak, not just to the house of Israel, but to the Gentiles and the kings. You see that, men? Boy, if you don't see that, I've been driving at this the whole time. Do you see that? God may take you and stand you up on the sideline, but what he's trying to do in your life, he's trying to work in your life to bring you to the point to where he can reveal some of his glory to you so that you will worship him so that now he can assign you a new place to serve. Because in the worship, he's changing your heart. He's changing your heart. He's going to give Moses a different heart. Moses will walk away from this a very different man at 80 years of age. You older men need to realize God's not through with you yet. When he is, you'll know it. You'll drop dead. But as long as you've got breath, God's got something for you to do. And it's in the midst of looking at his glory.
and worshiping him, that he changes your heart for a new assignment. On April the 6th, 1099, an arrow at the castle of Kelu found its way into the shoulder of Richard the Lionhearted. And he went down, and he eventually dies from the arrow. Now, some in history have said, well, it was a poisoned arrow. Uh, They've never found any reason to say that that's what it was. Most likely, it was gangrene that set in, or sepsis, or something like that, that took Richard's life, the king of England, the early, one of the early kings of England. I'm reading a four-part series right now on uh, early English history, and I'm into the third book. And um, Richard gives his life in that battle uh, trying to catch, recapture some of the land in Normandy that had been taken away from England. And so he's shot, and he dies, and they do with royalty what was very common in that day. They took out his viscera, we're just guys in there, they took his guts out and they buried his guts right there. I can't say that, you know, I, your viscera. So they buried that right there where he died. Then they took parts of his body and they buried them in different cathedrals around, you know, France and England. Uh, They took his body back and they buried his body next to his father, Henry II, but they took his heart out and they injected it with myrrh and frankincense and mint and daisy and uh, the dust from an oak tree and several other of these substances. And they did it so that it would give, they believed it would give the heart of Richard the aroma of Christ. Now you say, how do you know this? Because they dug his heart up in about the year 2000. And when they opened the box, poof, it all turned to dust. It was wrapped in linen and put in a silver case, a silver sarcophagi, small little box. And I'm here to tell you this, I don't care what you do in your life that makes you seem like Christ. It's only when you let Christ change your heart that you become like Christ. Let's stand. Now let me ask you something this morning with your heads bowed. Do you feel like you're on the sideline right now? You've been sidelined and you really don't know. You don't understand why. Men struggle with this. We don't like to admit it, but we struggle with it. It's hard. We feel like at times we've been put aside. And all we can think of is the tremendous disappointment. I'm discouraged. I'm despondent. I'm disappointed in myself. Sometimes we're embarrassed. Sometimes we feel ashamed. And we wonder, is is there anything that God will do with me? Yes, if you listen to him on the sideline. Let me tell you something. Just as he used Samson in the last moments of his life, he'll use you. Now the question is this. Am I willing to stand on the sideline without bucking the coach? Without grousing and grumbling and murmuring and fussing? Am I willing to stand on the sideline and wait for the coach to put me back in the game? I'm going to close this morning like I did last night. Would you come pray with me? It happens to pastors. It happens to all of us. We end up many times on the sideline feeling like I'm not useful anymore. You come on. You slip out. Come on down here and pray with me this morning.
tell the Lord, Lord, if I'm on the sideline, I want to be obedient. I want to hear you. And and Lord, if I'm in the game, I want to be listening for the cause. I don't want to be independent of you. I want to be dependent on you. Now, all of us, just with our heads bowed, why don't you talk to the Lord for just a moment? Tell him what's on your heart. He's listening. He yearns to hear from you. Call out to the Lord. Share with him your struggle. Even explain to the Lord that you don't understand why he has you there. And then go back to the Word this afternoon and let the Spirit of God just speak to you. Father, too many times we think we know better than you. We try to stay at something that you're not honoring and that you're not blessing when you've got so much more for us. Like Moses, Father, we need to be humbled. We need to serve, Father. We don't need to look for someone to come and serve us. We need to hear your words. I did not come to be served, but to serve. We need to be doing the little things that, Father, we can do that may seem little in the eyes of man, but they are great in the eyes of our God. Help us to be faithful men. Help us to be men of humility and men of integrity and men of uprightness, men who are called, that is a man of God. Oh Lord, there's no higher title than that for us. Not doctor, not prime minister, not president, not senator, no higher title than to be known as a man of God. Father, make us into men that little boys want to emulate. Make us into men that young teenagers look up to and hunger to be like. Help us to be examples to those that are coming behind us. Give us the strength, Father, to stoop and serve. Give us, Father, a willing heart. Give us the heart of Christ. Give us the heart of Christ. Give us the heart of Christ. For we pray it in his precious name.